a song of instruction, a contemplative poem. And the word means instruction, as we'll look at it down in verse 8. However, Maskell is also very likely a musical direction, the meaning of which is still unknown. You're also going to see in this psalm the word Selah three different times. The word Selah typically isn't read, but it is a musical instruction that there is to be either some kind of a pause, a crescendo, or an interlude. And as you look at these verses and the way it gets sectioned out, it makes a lot of sense that there is a a point of contemplation for the reader or for the listener of this psalm being sung and thinking about what does that mean to me. This psalm is also used at the close of the annual day of atonement in Jewish worship. Paul quoted these these first two verses in Romans chapter 7, excuse me, 4 verses 7 and 8 as a part of his argument for salvation being by grace alone apart from the works of the law. And this psalm is also very closely connected to Psalm 51. Both deal with David's dreadful sin of adultery and deception and the eventual murder of Uriah the Hittite. So to summarize what takes place, likely as a part of this psalm being written, is David sees the beautiful woman on the roof. He inquires about her. He learns that she is married, but he has her brought to him anyway. She gets pregnant. David brings her husband Uriah home from war under the guise of getting an update and checking to see how things are going. He thanks Uriah for his service and encourages him to now go home, get some rest, and spend some time with your wife. But Uriah is a noble man. He refuses to go home because his men are at battle. If they're sleeping in the fields under tents, How can I go home to be with my wife? And so he sleeps outside the door of David's palace. So David, frustrated that Uriah won't go home, brings him back a second night, and there they eat and drink, and David gets him drunk with another enticement to go home and to be with his wife, but Uriah refuses to go. And so David resorts to the last effort, and that is to send Uriah back to the battlefield, containing the instructions to send him to the front line, withdraw from him, and have him killed. And this is exactly what takes place. And after the appropriate time of mourning, David takes Bathsheba for his wife, and everything has been resolved, right? This is the beginning of the undoing in David's life, and we'll summarize that very, very briefly a little bit later on. Now, Psalm 51 was likely written during the period of David's lack of confession. Psalm 32 is likely written after David had already experienced the Lord's forgiveness. And so you have Psalm 51 is during this this difficulty. Psalm 32 is likely a backward reflection of what took place during this time in David's life. So let's look together in Psalm 32. We'll read all 11 verses. Here's what God's Word says to us today. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the, as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle, to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. It's really an incredible psalm. There's a little section in the middle that's a little bit complicated to follow, but we're going to look at this in four major sections. The first section we're going to see is the joy of forgiveness. David doesn't elaborate on the depth of his sin. What he does is he begins the psalm with a shoutful, with a shout of joy and thanksgiving and says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That word blessed there appears in Psalm 1-1 at the beginning of the entire Psalter. And that word very simply means happy many times over. There is a sense of happiness for the individual whose sins have been taken care of that words are really inadequate to thoroughly describe. It's like a ten-year-old who's at Disney World for the very first time and they are jumping up and down and they're just as giddy and as giggly as a girl or a boy could ever be. They are so happy that they have a difficult way of even containing it. Have you ever seen somebody that's been so happy that they burst into tears? There is a happiness that is just so abundant and so overflowing. And this is the idea that David is invoking into our minds. He doesn't speak from theological theory, however. David speaks from personal experience. As he looks back on this travesty in his life, and encounters the forgiveness of the Lord, he is deeply aware of his sinfulness, and he leaves no doubt about how deeply he is affected by this universal disease. And because God has cleansed him from that, he is happy beyond our ability to even describe. In this explanation, or this overview of sin, David uses three words. These words are relatively synonymous. There is some overlap in them, but there's also some very distinct differences about them. In context, it probably implies a reaction to God and His commandments as opposed to a specific type of sin. So these words that that are used here are not specific or distinct kinds of sin because of the overlap, but they just paint a comprehensive picture of the absolute sinfulness that David attributes to himself. The first word that he uses here is transgression. It generally has the idea of willful rebellion or disloyalty. There's a known commandment from the Lord, and when you commit a transgression, you willfully rebel against it, or you back away from your commitment to walk with the Lord, to serve the Lord, to honor the Lord. And so there is this sense of disloyalty that is attached in this word transgression. David is quick to admit that in his heart he sees the reality of who he is. This is important. 
We should pray, God, show me myself as You see me, not as I see me. You know, we can get dressed up on a Sunday morning. We can speak the lingo. We can talk the jargon. And sometimes we have a false sense of who we really are in our heart of hearts. Now, there is a positional truth about born-again believers in Jesus Christ where God looks at us and sees the shed blood of Jesus Christ covering and cleansing from our sin. That is who we are positionally. But practically, while we're still here on this earth working out our salvation with fear and trembling, the reality of our sinfulness should be very, very clear to us. David doesn't possess any self-deceit. There is no self-righteousness that he's trying to convey or to protect as he talks about this. He is at heart rebellious and can be disloyal to God. We would be foolish to think that we are any different than David. The second word that David uses here is the word sin, the most general word to describe sin. And it means to miss the mark. This isn't to be understood as the inability to be perfect, as if you're throwing a dart at a dartboard and you get really close to the bullseye, you might hit it occasionally. The word is often used in the context of intentionally missing the mark. So if there is a dartboard in front of you, to miss the mark would be to turn away from the dartboard and to throw it completely in an opposite direction. It is a willful missing of the mark. When David conjured up this idea to have Bathsheba brought to him and laid with her and she became pregnant and he had to deceive others around him and then finally brought about the death of Uriah, he knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't caught up in the heat of the moment. He didn't give in to a momentary passion. This was a thought-out plan. It was a willful missing of the mark to get what he wanted. The third word that we see here is the word iniquity. It means crooked or a wrong act. Again, this is an emphasis on the intentionality of David's actions. Not a moment of passion, not a slip up, not an oops, I can't believe I did that. He had set his heart to have that woman, and as king of Israel, he could have anything he wanted, and this is exactly what he did. He willfully set in motion a plan, and he carried it out. Now we can look back at David's sin and say, you know, I've never done anything even remotely close to that. Well, praise God for that, right? But just because we haven't committed an egregious kind of sin like adultery or murder, what you and I must recognize is that we are thoroughly sinful. I get a kick out of it. I've done some marriage counseling in my 20-some years of ministry and talk with these couples that are just marriages in shambles, and one of them will say, well, you know, I really don't consider myself to be that selfish. So that's part of the problem. You are blind to how selfish you really are. We have a a picture of who we are and what we're like, and often it's, it's something we've conjured up in our own minds to deal with the fact that we are thoroughly sinful. You and I possess a despicable spiritual condition that is predisposed to rebelling against God and willfully choosing 
to disobey Him. When we can't come to terms with that reality, I don't know that we will experience the beauty and the blessedness of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And this is really the good news. This is what is at the forefront of this psalm, is is David declaring that the forgiveness of sin of whatever kind, whether against God or man, whether great or small, whether intentional or accidental, whether by omission or commission, is to be found in God. Forgiveness can be found in God. No matter what you've done, how great or how small, accidental or intentional, you can find forgiveness in God. And is that not good news for you and I today? You see, we should be happy many times over that we understand this reality, at least theoretically, that we can experience the completeness of the forgiveness of God. But in reality, the closer we get to God, the more unholy we should be able to see ourselves. The nature of the sin is not as important in this psalm as is the blessedness of forgiveness. David uses three verbs to express the absoluteness of the forgiveness that God gives to His children. Our sin is forgiven. That's the idea of our sin being carried away. It is the act of removing our sin from us, of removing our guilt, and and, and the remembrance of sin. This was symbolized during the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would symbolically place the sins of the people on the scapegoat, and the scapegoat would be sent into the wilderness, and it symbolized God's removal of sin from the people. It was being carried away into the wilderness. This is exactly the idea that David wants his hearers to understand. It is your sin being carried away. God declares that I will cast your sin as far as the east is from the West. Two lines that will never meet. That's what God does with our sin. He carries it away. Secondly, our sin is covered. The word covered here means atonement and reconciliation. A second part of what took place on the Day of Atonement was the blood of sacrifice that wasn't put on the scapegoat, but the blood of sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat by the high priest, that peace in the Holy of Holies that represented to the nation of Israel the very presence and existence of God. That blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat and indicated that the sin had been covered by the people. Our sin is not impugned to us. That word impute means does not count. It's a bookkeeping term and it means to have something put on your account or to be put on your record. I was watching the Waltons the other day and they went to the general store and they said, put it on my tab, right? Put it on my account. I'll settle that up with you later down the road. Well, this is the idea here, is that God does not impute our sin to our account. He does not keep record of it. He removes the debt and cancels it out and erases it from his books. Now, if you and I were to have a list, a journal of every sin that we've ever ever committed in our lives, it'd be like the Encyclopedia Britannica, volume A to Z, right? It would be exhaustive. But after we've come to the cross of Christ and been cleansed from our sin, you can go through those pages and there's not a single thing there. It's been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
We don't have goats and blood sacrifices or mercy seats or a day of atonement ceremony. What you and I have is the finished work of the cross. And every time we see a cross, it ought to be a very vivid reminder that God has carried our sins away. It has been reconciled through the blood and He no longer holds our account of sin Against us. There are so many verses that we could read that would reinforce this reality. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's how God sees us positionally while we are working out our salvation in this world. Romans 5 verses 8-11 through 11. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if we were, if for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Every time we read these verses, we should say, Thank you, God. Amen and amen, God. I am happy beyond definition at the forgiveness that I have experienced at the blood of Christ. Happy, many times over, is the man or woman whose sin is not counted against them because their sin has been forgiven, it's been carried away, it has been covered by the blood of Christ. Now, very, very subtly in these first two verses is the limitation here. You see the limitation at the end of verse 2. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. You see, there's a contrast that is identified by those who would deceive themselves about their sin and those that come before the Lord to experience the full release of the weight and the burden and the consequence of their sin. Our truest experience of forgiveness is found when we are honest with ourselves about the severity of our sinful condition and our continual need to be cleansed. I've shared my testimony on a number of occasions in many, many different settings. And I grew up in a very pagan home. God was not a part of the conversation. I knew nothing about the Bible. I lived the life of a juvenile delinquent. And apart from the intervening grace of God, I have no idea where I would be today. I've had people tell me, boy, I wish I had a testimony like that. Because the forgiveness of God would mean so much more to me if I did. Well, I would debate that with you. I wouldn't trade my testimony with anybody. If I could have grown up in the church and known a loving mom and dad who instilled godly virtue and values into my life, I would have said, please sign me up for that. But there is a reality that the more honest we are about our sin, whether great or small, the more honest we are, the more amazing the forgiveness of God becomes to us. When we lived in, in this facade of self-righteousness, God's forgiveness is really for the bad, bad people. It, you know, it, yeah, it's for me in a general sense. But hey, I got saved and it's all good, right? Well, no, it's not all good. 
We are to continue to be conformed in the image of Christ, having our sinfulness eradicated, our old man crucified, so that we can live to Christ. And as we do that, His grace becomes more and more amazing. Honesty with ourselves and what the Lord enables us to receive in full what He so graciously offers, a clean conscience, a guilt-free walk with Him, a personal experience with forgiveness, not a theological theory. How blessed is the man whose sin the Lord has forgiven. Big Roman numeral two here. The foolishness of self-deceit. David will describe what his life was like during this year-long period where he pretended that everything was just fine, that he had done nothing wrong, and he would describe his life as a period, he would describe this period of his life in self-deceit. Verses 3 and 4, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You see, the foolishness of self-deceit is very simply, silence is deadly. Silence is deadly. Now, David describes these physical symptoms as the result of his spiritual condition. Now, there's some debate amongst the scholars as to whether or not David is speaking metaphorically about these things that he is experiencing or if he's actually talking about real, live, physical pain. In today's terms, we would call that a psychosomatic illness. There's some people who want to completely dismiss the idea of psychosomatic illness, but there is a connection between stress and painful physical manifestations resulting in headaches, backaches, sore necks, ulcers, digestive problems. There's a litany of diagnoses that have been potentially linked to the physical stress that we can be under from whatever is taking place in our lives. Those that suffer from depression often complain of physical symptoms that make the normal duties of everyday life almost impossible. They can't sleep. That's all they want to do is sleep. They don't have any motivation. They don't have any drive. They don't have any energy. They can't focus on anything. I don't know if you've ever had anybody in your life that was clinically depressed But many believe that this is the result of stress and trauma and unresolved issues within the life of an individual. So David's egregious sin was taking a terrible toll on him, whether it being physical or metaphorical, and he describes it this way, his body was wasting away. In the Hebrew, that word body literally means his bones He says, it feels like my bones are deteriorating in my skin. Wasting away is a term that describes clothing that is absolutely worn out. And this is how David describes how he feels physically. This spiritual turmoil is described as pain in his bones, the resulting of his groaning all day long. Do you have any arthritis in your body? I've got video game arthritis in my thumbs. And I have some other places where it periodically will show up. But I'll tell you what, when your bones hurt from arthritis, you know it, right? 
And I have heard many, many people complain about the pain and they moan and they groan and they rub their knuckles and they put all the lotions and all the ointments on it and there just isn't any relief for them. And they say, I just hurt all day long. It feels like my bones are breaking on the inside of my skin. This is exactly what David is describing. He says, God's hand was heavy upon me. That's David's way of describing the conviction of God the Father in his life. And if you want to think metaphorically about God's hand, well, God the creator of the universe, who could spin the earth on a finger if he wanted to, has his hand on David in such a way that David probably feels like he's being squished into the ground like a bug. God's hand is heavy upon him. This could be real physical pain from the conviction, God's discipline in his life. And he says, this is no fun at all. God's hand is pinning me to the ground. He describes this as his vitality being drained as in the fever heat of summer. Now, we experienced some pretty significant heat this summer, didn't we? Well, it doesn't really compare to the kind of heat that you would get in the Middle East, a very arid, very dry, very, very hot area. You do know when you go outside and work in the intense heat, you don't have a lot of endurance. You just get, Your energy is just totally sapped away from you. If you get 30 minutes in, it's probably pretty good. This is what David's saying, is my energy is being drained out of my body. I don't know how I'm going to make it through the rest of the day. He was experiencing this heavy conviction. His bones were breaking inside of him like worn out clothing. And he was unwilling to confess and repent of his sin. We need to be reminded that God convicts us of our sin and He disciplines us when we refuse to confess and repent of our sin because He loves us. This is what the writer of Hebrews would outline in Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And this is taken from Job and the Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him, for those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, listen to this, and He scourges every son whom He receives. When we read these verses, what we should have brought to our mind is that if I am not feeling the conviction of the Lord, if I don't feel His scourging in my life, it's either because one I have no unconfessed sin in my life. I'm not aware of anything that God would not be happy about in my life. Two, we aren't really Christians. We profess to be Christians, but there is no sense of conviction. There is no need to repent in our lives. Or three, we're walking in absolute disobedience to God and are unwilling to hear or to sense His discipline in our lives. Two of those are really scary places to be. If you can say, I look at my walk with God and I see no area that I need to repent of, that's a problem. Because you and I are not finished work. We are not a project that is completed. We are continuing to have our lives conform to the image of Christ 
every day of our life, year after year after year, until the Lord takes us home. Big Roman numeral number three, the path to restoration. Verse five, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So the same three words for sin that are used in verses one and two are repeated here, although in a different order. And we have three words that describe this path to restoration. The first word is confession. In order to be freed from the guilt and shame of our sin, we must confess it. It's not enough to know that we've sinned. We have to confess our sin. We will never truly experience the love and grace and mercy and goodness of God until we lay it all out before Him and say, I am a sinner. This is what I have done. And God, I beg you for your cleansing work of forgiveness by the blood of Jesus Christ. The second word here is acknowledge. That word acknowledge means to make known. David had come to the point in his life where he was tired of pretending that everything was fine. The spiritual, the mental, the emotional, the physical toll, anguish that David was experiencing had finally reached its breaking point and David was ready to come clean. He makes known what God has known all along. I think sometimes we forget that God is omniscient. He's not so busy and so distracted with things going on in the world that something we do or say or don't do slips by. God doesn't miss anything. He knows it all. As amazing as that is, God knows what we will do before we do it. He knows what we will say before we'll say it. He knows what we'll think before we even think it. And so to acknowledge is to make known what God has known all along. That's really the foolishness of silence because God already knows what it is we've done. David also says that he did not hide. He no longer tried to cover his sinfulness. He laid it all out in the open. God's conviction prompted David's repentance and the point of confession in his life is what he's looking back on now. It's really interesting when you go and look in 2 Samuel where this is accounted for. David confesses a sin and God says, okay, through the prophet Nathan, your sins have been taken away. There's no penance. There's no berating. There's no wagging of the finger. There's no guilting. God simply says, I have forgiven you. Is that not amazing that God would do that? Is it not unthinkable that the holy, majestic, glorious God who is perfect in every way would look upon the simple confession of this adulterous, murderous man and say, your sin is forgiven. See, that's why David looks back and says, how blessed is the man whose sin the Lord has forgiven. This word confess here means to tell. David has come clean. He's telling God the dreadful thing he has done. And the result of this is praiseworthy in David's life. God 
forgives. He declares, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. All of it. All of it. The deception. The fact that he was on the roof gazing out instead of being out with the men who were at war. The adultery, the looking and the longing and the bringing. The committing, the killing. God forgave it all. You see, that's the greatest blessing that you and I can ever know is the forgiveness of our sin through the blood of Jesus on the cross. All that we have ever done, all that we will ever do through the confession of our sin and our faith in the finished work of the cross brings about a complete and total work of forgiveness. Wiped away. Spotless. Acceptable to God. The first time we do this, it results in our salvation. But there is a need to continually do this because you and I continue to get our hands and our feet and our mouths dirty with the things that we do and say in the places that we go. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, there isn't a sin that God won't forgive us for with the exception of not asking for forgiveness. See, if we never ask for forgiveness, God will never grant it. That is the unpardonable sin. So the result is, you and I are just supposed to pray. Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. It's these two verses that get a little bit tricky and, and what David's trying to communicate and how they fit with the flow of everything that David has said so far. So the godly man here refers to those who are the children of God, those who are of the redeemed, those who already know who God is, they already know what God has provided for them. And so the instruction is, everyone who is godly, pray to you in a time when you may found, may be found cleansing and forgiveness of sin, which is provided by the cross and experienced through prayer, is the call that David is giving to the godly. The call to pray to God when he may be found is directly related to the experience David describes in verses 3 and 4, when his bones were wasting away, when he felt the heavy hand of the Lord upon him, when his energy was being sapped away from him, as in the fever heat of summer. That phrase, in a time when you may be found, is literally in a time of finding, meaning we should not delay our confession before the Lord. You see, if you and I know of sin in our life that we have not repented of and confessed to the Lord, don't wait till tomorrow. We're not supposed to wait till next Sunday when we're in church. We're not supposed to wait till we feel like it. We're not supposed to wait until God really gets our attention. We are to pray this prayer while he may be found. The other part of that is we're not guaranteed a tomorrow to do this for the very first time and be saved. Nor are we guaranteed a tomorrow to enter into the presence of the Lord knowing that we have done all that we've known to do to live for him, to honor him, and to please him. Our ability to experience God's presence in our life is influenced by our unconfessed sin. That's why we are to pray to Him when He may be found. If we have unconfessed sin in our life, there is a barrier to our experiencing the presence of the Lord. 
If we go long enough with this unconfessed sin in our life, many scholars and theologians will say, God withdraws himself from the proud sinner who has no interest in confessing his sin. I don't know if this is where God gives us over to our sin, but it's a scary thought that God would withdraw himself from us because we are unwilling to deal with our sin. So the result of this continual confession and this regular communion with God as the godly continually pray to Him is that we will experience His presence in times of great trouble which is expressed in the phrase surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach Him. What it means is we will not be overwhelmed or toppled over by life's circumstances when we are pursuing an intimate personal relationship with God. There's always going to be a torrent of circumstance that comes our way. And if we are locked in in our relationship with the Lord, we're going to see that, we're going to experience that, but we're not going to be rocked by it. We're going to say, I'm safe in God's hands. God's in control. He's sovereign. He's known about this from eternity past. I just need to learn how to rest in Him. The flood of great waters may also speak of God's hand of discipline in the lives of His children who refuse to confess and repent. Verse 7 expresses the content of the prayer that David suggests that we pray. Verse 7, You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. We looked at this last week. And the idea that God is our hiding place. He is our refuge. He is our security. He is our safety. So when we have this torrent of circumstance that may be the result of unconfessed sin or just circumstances in general because God is our hiding place. There will be this quick and complete confession of our sin. The one in which I find my purpose, the one in which I find true meaning and true joy, He is the one in whom I will hide. David says, you preserve me from trouble. God is the one who protects him. God is the one who delivers him from the trouble that is around him, the trouble that he experienced in this time of unconfession. He says, you surround me with songs of deliverance, not strong walls, not with military power, but with songs that celebrate God's deliverance in the lives of his people who personally know the blessedness of being forgiven by the Father. This prayer is a celebration of the joy that comes in having a personal, intimate relationship with God. Now the last section here, Roman numeral 4, the joy of obedience. Here we find God's instruction to David as a result of his confession and the subsequent prayer that he expresses in chapter 7. So it could be that God is speaking in just verse 8 or that he is speaking in both verses 8 and 9. But very clearly there is a change here. And one of the key indicators of that is in this verse where the, where the personal pronoun, pronoun my is capitalized, indicating that it is speaking of God. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So the joy of obedience is found, first of all, and God's saying, follow me. He says, I will teach you, I will, I will instruct you, I will guide you. Like the three-verb style of expressing sin and forgiveness and confession, here we have a three-verb synonymous setup expressing 
God's instructions to David. Instruct, teach, and counsel are promises that God makes to David. I will teach you. I will instruct you. I will counsel you. It's a promise. It's the assurance that we have from God. And God says, and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God doesn't look over the mass of humanity in a distinct blur. He looks at us specifically and individually. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I think this is an example of where God answers our prayers differently than we expect. David expects future deliverance. And in the sense, God does continue to deliver David from his enemies. He's never killed at the hand of an enemy. But God promises his watchful eye and his guiding of David's life. Now, David's life, as a result of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, his life would be filled with great turmoil that he would never be delivered from, nor would he ever be able to to escape. Here's a very succinct summary of the kind of consequence David faced over this. Bathsheba conceived and gave birth to a son, but the baby died, right? David's son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar and was killed by David's son Absalom. Absalom then revolted and tried to overthrow his father from the throne and he was killed by his brother Joab. All this took place in David's life as a result of the sin that he had committed. I am quite certain that David prayed for deliverance from this reality, but that was not going to be undone. While David was dying, his son Adonijah tried to take the scepter from Solomon, and Adonijah was also killed. David's family died by the sword, while David himself was spared such a death. Where David sought deliverance, God instead provided his presence to teach, to instruct, and to counsel. The second instruction that we have in here, follow me, God says. The other one is, don't be stubborn. Verse 9, do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. This is either David expanding what God has told him, or it's God completing the instruction to David. I believe this is God speaking. David was quick to jump into this incredibly sinful situation, not once seeking the Lord, and he was incredibly stubborn in confessing and repenting of his sin, and that isn't God's way. The analogy of a horse and a mule is injected for application. These beasts of the field had no moral sense to guide their actions. They would simply follow their instincts and do and go wherever it is they wanted to do. This is the analogy of how we are in our sinful state that desires no confession, no repentance, the willful, self-ruled, self-directed life. So without the constant restraint of a bit and a bridle, horses and donkeys will just run off and do whatever they want to do. The instruction is, don't be like that. Don't be so stubborn that you have to be restrained by the bit or the bridle. Don't be stubborn in the confession of sin. Don't be quick to find, excuse me, instead be quick to find refuge in the forgiving arms of God unless we prefer the heavy hand of God's discipline as expressed in verses 3 and 4. This 
analogy of horse and donkey and man is expressed in Proverbs 26.3. A whip is for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. You see, when we refuse to confess and repent of our sin, we are being like the fool. And that's what brings about God's hand of discipline in our life. So in order to prevent us from being our experience, we should learn from the wicked. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. So here the wicked are a contrast with the godly, those who are quick to confess their sin and repent from it. David says that the sorrow from the consequence of sin is severe. It's a contrast to our ability to know the love and the grace and the forgiveness that comes from walking obediently to the Lord. You have the wicked and the godly. You have the sorrow and you have the joy. You have a sin-filled and a sin-cleansed life as a part of the contrast here that we get from this verse. We are to learn from the wicked. Don't live like they do. Don't replicate what they do. Instead, look and do differently as they do. The last piece we have in our instruction is very simply to rejoice in the Lord. This is almost like a doxology. As David looks back over the cleansing work of God in his life, verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. You see, you and I have the assurance of forgiveness, and the path to restoration through confession is a reason for us to joyfully shout and to rejoice in the Lord. The righteous ones are those that seek to walk before the Lord in obedience also expressed as being upright in heart. As you look at your life, as you think about the cleansing that you've experienced at the hands of God the Father through Christ's death on the cross, how do you reconcile that? How how do you meditate upon that? What do you do to keep that at the front of your mind so that every every day you live... We live it with a deep sense of happiness over the forgiveness that we have in Christ. You see, if we're not intentional to think about that, it's very possible that we just kind of overlook it. And it's not until there's something big or something we've done that's really bad that causes us to reconsider our need to be cleansed of our sin. You and I are thoroughly sinful and thoroughly selfish. We are to continue to be rid of that all the days of our life. It doesn't change who we are positionally, but it certainly interferes with how we experience the majestic forgiveness that God gives to us. You see, where there isn't a need for forgiveness, there's no rejoicing, there's no thanksgiving. But when our need is in the front of our faces, when we can't escape it, God's grace is amazing every day. Would you pray with me? Father, would you remove the dullness of our hearts as we consider our need for forgiveness? Would you help us to be aware of how much we need to be forgiven for? We don't need to be adulterers or murderers or thieves or brawlers to be in need of forgiveness. We just need to be honest and recognize the sin in our life. God, help us to do that through the convicting work of the Spirit. May you find in us a people whose heart is ready to rejoice and be filled with great joy over your 
willingness and your provision to forgive. As we struggle with our sin, as we strive to live a life of holiness to you, would you remind us that your mercy and your grace and your love are are not exhaustible. They are new for us each and every day. Would we celebrate that? And would that be a motivation for us to keep pushing forward? We pray that you be delighted with our heart and our desire to honor you. We pray in Jesus' name.